On March 6, 1994, Luis Donaldo Colosio, the pre-candidate for Mexican president, made a brave and startling speech in which he distanced himself from his predecessor, Carlos Salinas. He described a Mexico that was still impoverished, beaten down, still a third world country. He promised that he would carry out the political reform, the implementation of democracy, and that he would separate the PRI and the government. Two weeks later, in the crowded aftermath of a political rally in Tijuana, Baja California, as Colosio was moving through the crowd, a man got close enough to shoot him dead. Had he been murdered or executed, was Salinas the hand behind the crime? Almost impossible, despite Colosio's apparent rupture with him before even reaching the presidential chair. It was certainly clear that so grave a crime as the murder of the presumed future president of Mexico would mire the government in disrepute, drive away investors, and destroy Salinas's achievement. Did Aburto, the man with a gun, act on his own? He would behave as if he were mentally unbalanced, even under harsh police interrogation. It is not entirely impossible that he was a solitary assassin. And yet, later, with the revelation of the alleged crimes of Salinas's brother Raul, another possibility surfaced. Could Raul have ordered Colosio killed, fearing that Colosio as president would break with Carlos Salinas and reveal Raul's immense financial corruption and connections with major drug cartels? Whatever the truth of the case, and even though the military power of the Chiapas guerrillas was much weaker than it had first appeared, their success at international communication, the mere fact of their persistence, now merged with the assassination of a future president. The bullet that killed Colosio finished the work begun by Marcos. It fragmented the system that now appeared to be morally bankrupt. And that is from Enrique Krause's 1997 Mexico biography of power. I'm Joshua Trevino, and this is The Hard Country. Welcome to the Hard Country Podcast. My name is Melissa Ford. I'm a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I'm joined by Joshua Trevino, our chief of intelligence and research. Thank you for being here, Josh, and thank you for reading that passage. I thought it would be really good to quickly recap what's going on, because that's a lot of stuff, <laughs> and lot. not all of us have your knowledge of Mexican history. So I'll recap it for some of the listeners that may not know. Um, this took place in 1994, it did. right? Yes. And it is the story of Luis Donaldo Colosio, mm -hmm. um, who was a Mexican politician and the pre-presidential uh, candidate. Yes. And he was assassinated after a rally um, in 1994. And I guess the general opinion in Mexico is that he was killed by this plot orchestrated by the pre-party. Uh, specifically by the then president Carlos Salinas. Well, specifically his brother Raúl uh, is, is the is the the allegation that Krause makes uh, yeah. that uh, he doesn't think uh, that that um, Carlos would have done it. He right. thinks that Raúl would have had the motivation. Uh, Raúl, mm -hmm. because they were scared uh, that he might have known about some murky business, some some ties with drug cartels, and yeah. um, some evidence of huge, immense. Um, financial fraud it's, and schemes, right? Yeah, no, exactly. It's sort of this watershed in modern Mexican politics, modern Mexican history, and it's worth diving into a little bit because uh, the issues that it raises are still current today. Uh, yeah. So not well known to American audiences, but in no. Mexico, it's, it's pretty general knowledge, of course, that in 1994, 
you have this shocking event that somebody who has received, uh, you know, what they call the dedazo, you know, the finger pointing, like you're going to yeah. be the next president, yeah. uh, is assassinated. And so Mexico throughout the 1990s is uh, slowly opening up. It's slowly moving from this kind of one-party autocracy into a true multi-party democracy. Of course, now, 30 years later, it's backsliding back into a one-party autocracy. Uh, but at the, at the time, uh, Colosio ends up, although he's a faithful party man with the PRI, which is, it's, it's the Partido Revolucionario Institucional. It's at Pretty, see. See, okay, okay, yeah, sorry about <laughs> my Spanish. Institutional Revolutionary Party. The Institutional yeah. Revolutionary Party, right, exactly. So the PRI is, is, is effectively the autocratic party that's controlled Mexico right. in various guises since uh, the early 1920s. And, uh, and, and Colosio is the next guy in line, uh, and so he ascends, and he's been a faithful party man uh, throughout his career. Um, there's a great Netflix documentary on this, uh, by the way. It's called 1994, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, uh, and, but when he becomes the nominee, uh, he, he feels this burden, this moral burden, to make Mexico into a modern liberal state. Right. And he declares his intention to do that. Now, there have been three presidents who have tried this before in the preceding century, um, but what they have tended to do is kind of hold their cards close to the vest until they actually become the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Colosio doesn't do that. He signals very early on. And, and he does it for a variety of reasons, not least because uh, there is uh, a real suspicion that the preceding presidential election in 1988 um, uh, saw fraud, which uh, Guatemala Cardenas is basically deprived of the presidency. He probably actually won it, uh, but he was defrauded out of it. And so uh, Colosio feels that he has to signal that he's not going to be uh, that guy. In fact, he has a, a pretty remarkable quote. It's remarkable in a Mexican political context that he would rather lose the election than win through fraud, uh, which, uh, you know, the difference with him is that he actually meant it. And, uh, and so uh, somebody shoots him in the head uh, at this yeah. rally. In '94, and it's a shocking thing uh, because it, it demonstrates the the extent to which these entrenched interests, who have a real interest in the old style of corruption and the old you know kind of pathways of power, are willing to do almost anything uh, to uh, get this man who's going to ruin them out of the way. Now, what they end up doing is uh, sowing the seeds of their own destruction because, of course, mm-hmm. the shock of the assassination of Colosio doesn't have the terrorizing effect uh, that these forces, who probably killed him, we should say probably, nothing's ever been proven, which is very typical kind of, again, for the Mexican context, right, right. but uh, who probably killed him, uh, end up um, you know, putting uh, Ernesto Cedillo in power. And uh, Cedillo actually does, to a large extent, uh, what Colosio um, said he would do, which is he separates the party from the state. And then in the year 2000, Vicente Fox, who's not a PAN, uh, I'm sorry, who's not a PRI candidate, he's the PAN candidate, Mm -hmm. so Partido Acción Nacional, uh, wins the presidency and the PRI is out of power for 12 years. Uh, And so so that, you know, when we think about that, we think about, and, and it's useful to look at now because none of this is a quality of the Mexico of the past. Uh, you know, we still have the same entrenched forces uh, that are willing to do uh, almost anything uh, to preserve their power. Uh, you know, yeah. th- thank God we're not at the point where uh, presidential candidates are being assassinated in Mexico. But we are at a point where the last election cycle was one of the deadliest for candidates on record. I forget yeah. what the number is, but it was hundreds, if not thousands, of local candidates, alcaldes and local officials who were killed across Mexico. Um, uh, likely at the hands of cartels allied with various interests in the state. And that's such a worrying phenomenon. And the fact that Mexico has not moved past that in the way that it ought to is a legitimate concern. Yeah, it's definitely a concern. And the reason that I like the passage that you read so much is because of the theories that Krauss floats, right? So he talks about how 
the political elite didn't want to see any change and mm -hmm. how this is something that he kept bringing up reform just like you talked about that wasn't something that people usually would bring up before that they were elected right. and i kind of want to use that to shift gears a little bit into some more breaking news um since we're on the topic of like corruption and we talked about maybe a little bit of the collusion that the brother of Salinas might have had with some drug cartels mm -hmm. or like some of the financial crimes. Uh, and I want to bring that to something that happened last week. Please. And that is the arrest of Tomas Yarrington Rubalcalva. I okay. think that's how you pronounce it. He was a... Uh, he was a governor um, of Tama Tamaulipas. Yes. And funny enough, he was also one time a presidential contender. Okay. Um, he, I believe, tried to run for president in 2005 after he was done with his time in office as governor. Was he a panista or was he? Uh, he was with PRI. He was I a PRI. Yeah. He was a PRIista. Okay. PRI. I think I have it written. Down no, I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure he was with PRI. Because Tamaulipas was a pretty stronghold until fairly recently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. But um, the the story is that he was last Wednesday sentenced um, to nine years in prison. In the United States or in Mexico? In the United States. I think he'll be deported after his time um, serving it. Okay. Um, but he was sentenced to that for accepting millions of dollars in illegal bribes. It's kind of funny because last episode we talked about this happening with Genaro Garcia Luna. Yes. And we said in that episode, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Right. And now this last Wednesday, uh, we saw another person that was convicted. Um, but what's more interesting, I think, about this case is we saw it right here in Texas. He uh, fled, I believe, in 2012, and he mm -hmm. was on the run for about five years. And then he was arrested, and now he's you know, being tried. But what happened is he was taking a lot of money from different drug cartels. Was he, he on the run in the United States, or was he on he the run in Mexico? He was everywhere. He was eventually arrested in Italy. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. But part of his dirty deeds had a lot to do with Texas because he mm -hmm. was taking all of this money, not just from drug cartels, but accepting bribes for people from people who wanted some business deals and were kind of paying him off. And he was using that money to buy real estate um, and then a lot of luxury goods right here in Texas. And I mean, like um, Port Isabel. Um, oh, sure. Um, South Padre Island, McAllen, even like some of the suburbs in San Antonio and Austin, like right here, he was buying like large developments, houses, mansions. And the real estate was a method of capital parking to launder the money. Into, exactly. Okay, exactly. Okay. It's and quite common. Yeah. And yeah. not just real estate. He, he even bought like luxury airplanes, luxury cars. It's a nice like life. All sorts of stuff. Didn't really fly under the radar, did he? No, not yeah. really. And I think that this is very interesting. And the reason that I wanted to bring it up is because it's something that we've been talking about for a long time, mm -hmm. about how a lot of people take this dirty money that they make in Mexico and think perfect. I'm going to go spend it and enjoy it in the U.S. Right. And so I want to kind of ask you, do you think that this is something that the U.S. can do something about? I know that this kind of corruption happens in Mexico, but how can we stop it from happening here? Yeah, no, great question. And th th there's a lot of things we can do uh, to, to, to stop it here. And there's probably more that we ought to do. One of the things that, that you and I have talked about a lot at the foundation, both in public and in private, mm -hmm. is the extension of the angle list right. uh, to Mexican nationals. And this, to me, would be a prime example of where it would be of use 
to have uh, you know people on a list. And right now, it only applies to I think Honduran, Nicaraguan, Guatemalan, and I think El Salvadorian nationals. Yes, right? correct. So it's not it was recently extended to Nicaragua. Recently extended to Nicaragua. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Because the Ortega regime there has uh, right. bent over backwards to revive the enmity with the United States, right. which is uh, crazy of them, but very characteristic at the same time. Uh, dictators don't change. Um, uh, whether it's from the 1980s or now, yeah. uh, we should extend it to Mexico and Mexican nationals at the same time. And so if we were to do that, uh, then individuals like this, uh, even in the absence of, say, a prosecutable crime uh, within the United States that we had jurisdiction over, we could still go ahead and deny them the ability to enter, to invest their assets, to access their assets if need be. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's such an easy and direct administrative tool that's really at the hands of the federal government, um, uh, to a lesser extent, Texas state government, that uh, that it's it, it's almost astonishing that in Washington, D.C., they haven't done it yet. Yeah, it is very surprising. But at the same time, I can't help but think like, corruption really is very hard to prove, right? I mean, there are cases that are so obvious. Sometimes. But there are cases that are a little bit less obvious that people sometimes choose to look the other way. Like, for example, oh, yeah. with Garcia Luna, who we were talking about last week, it was there was like something very fishy around him for such a long time. People mm-hmm. were wondering how he made so much money on the salary of a civil servant. Um, yeah, it's very inconsistent. And even now we see it with some members um, of the me- Mexican government, even at the highest levels. And yes, I am referring to Amlo's family. Uh, he has this kind of image as a populist, right? Right. But you see people wondering how how is family has so much money where does his family wealth come from well his son in houston texas in particular yeah yeah yeah. and he lives like a life of luxury and no one really knows where it comes from and so right things like that i think that sometimes it's through his, it's through his consultancy and waste management business oh, I'm sure. oh yeah, yeah yeah i'm yeah. sure but it's it's kind of hard to to trace and so i think that is that something that you foresee being an issue with the angle list there are so many cases that are not necessarily black or white yeah i think i mean great question uh, i think i think the burden um, you know there, there there must be there must be and and this is something that's important to understand the 14th amendment applies to persons uh, not just to, not just to american citizens so when we when we talk about the application of the law especially if you're going to prosecute somebody th- there must be a high standard for that mm. you can't just prosecute somebody based upon right. uh, you know like a mere suspicion. That being said, uh, there are prudential reasons, I think very sound and persuasive prudential reasons, for um, an administrative threshold of, of, you know, call it what you will, punishment, sanction, whatever, mm. um, in cases like this where, where the proof is not necessarily available, uh, where you can look at somebody and you can say, you know what, there is a pattern here that suggests X. Um, I don't know if I could prove it in a court of law, but it is sufficient for me to want to insulate, you know, and, and let's be candid what we're talking about, insulate broader U.S. society mm. from this individual and his activities. And I think that's entirely legitimate and within yeah. the power of the United States government. And right. so given, given that, that entire milieu and cohort that we're talking about, which is these, you know, kind of these, um, uh, these third country elites, Mexican elites uh, in particular, who do have this robust record, uh, in, in in my view, and I think increasingly the view of a lot of policymakers as well, is that the burden of proof is going to be on them. And if you are somebody who has this pattern of activity, mm-hmm. you're an office holder, no visible means of support, buying a ton of property in South Texas, you know, following this pattern, um, uh, is that sufficient to get you on a list? Uh, probably it ought to be at this point, especially given the emergency situation that our border presents. 
Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And the naming and shaming strategy can be very efficient. 100%. We have seen that a lot of times in yeah. different scenarios. Uh, but I want to take this to, you know, I think that right now we're talking about something that could be relatively easy for the federal government to do mm-hmm. to help uh, give us more tools against corruption. And I think that a lot of the time it's easy to talk about what the federal government isn't doing. But I kind of want to touch you know, touch on something that happened this week, and that is the big congressional delegation that went down to Mexico to talk to the Mexican president, AMLO, about fentanyl, immigration, right. um, a lot of different things. Cornyn, Cinema, Gonzalez, yeah. Yes, uh, and even Cuellar, some Texas, yeah. I, um, a lot of the, the Texans went down there. They did. And then um, it seems like it was a very productive conversation, that it was like very diplomatic. Um, but a lot of interesting things came out of it. Um, do you want to recap maybe some of what you've heard about those meetings? I, I haven't heard much about the meetings that isn't in in, in the public record. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, and they're not they're not the first. I mean, there've been codels that have gone down to Mexico City in the past few weeks, right. uh, in the past few months, and uh, it looks to me uh, this isn't a criticism of the the, the congressmen involved from either party um, or the senators for that matter. Uh, but it looks to me that, that the that the Mexicans, uh, the apparatus, you know, from the president to yeah. to Ebrard, to Roberto Velasco, who's in charge of the U.S. relationship, kind of have a formula. Um, uh, you know, they the, the the conversations go along the lines of we're cooperating. What more do you want us to do? Look at how much we're yeah. suffering. Um, uh, look at your fault in this. You're sending guns. You know, it's your right. demand that, that 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 does this. And the, the reason that they have this formula is because the formula in the past has mostly worked. Uh, mm-hmm. It has mostly sufficed, you know, for, for officeholders in both parties in the United States to go and to hear that and to say, well, okay, you know, you know thanks for, you know, doing what you're doing. Um, and it's gotten the Americans off their back, even, even as the Mexican president is visiting El Chapo's mother, even as they've got an alliance with the Sinaloans, even as they're allowing their territory to be used uh, by the enemies of the United States, which the cartels are. Um, this has seemed to satisfy our political class. I think, though, that, that that's coming to an end. Uh, and so I think this, that this era of the um, kind of the friendly Codel or the one that goes down and sort of, sort of accepts, and I'm not characterizing the one that just happened, by the way, but I'm saying broadly speaking, yeah. but the one that, that goes and then comes away with assurances of Mexican cooperation uh, is, is, is coming to an end. And it's yeah. coming to an end specifically because under AMLO specifically, this is happening a little bit under Peña Nieto, but uh, you know, give the Peña Nieto administration credit. Uh, they were profoundly unpopular in Mexico, mm. but they understood the Americans really well. They did, because yeah. that, yeah. that was a real milieu, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so AMLO doesn't. Uh, and so AMLO, I think we've talked about this before, has maneuvered Mexico um, quite foolishly into, um, uh, I think we might have talked about this in the last episode, yeah, but it's, so. it's worth going the, the, the bipartisan kill zone in American politics, which is that the Republicans are mad at him because of his threats to them uh, and uh, his obvious involvement in cartel activities. And the Democrats increasingly don't like him either because uh, he has uh, you know, progressively destroyed the electoral infrastructure in Mexico, right. which you know kind of put, pushes a hot button for them. Um, so it's very difficult to see uh, how how positive relations continue yeah, in that vein. It's definitely different. And mm-hmm. one of the things that came up in these conversations was, you know, fentanyl. And uh, this was very interesting because initially AMLO was recognizing the need to work together on it. And he kind of even went into, yes, we want to help with this. But then he very quickly kind of shifted the blame for it, didn't want to take any responsibility for fentanyl. Well, he said he would talk to the Chinese, right? Exactly. Like, like that was so his offer. Like, that was what thanks. he initially said. He was yeah. like, oh, well, I'll talk to China about them, like mm-hmm. sending that over here. And then he kind of, you know, shifted gears and blamed the 
Americans for demanding it and for consuming it. Right. And then he even recently said he um, that Mexico does not produce or consume fentanyl. Did right. you see that? Right. Just basically like completely denied any involvement or responsibility. And with literally it. the day after he says that, he appoints a fentanyl czar to deal with Mexico's fentanyl problem. Yeah, but why? I thought you know Mexico didn't have a fentanyl well, I problem. I guess I got one in 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. But I wanted to ask you your initial thoughts on that, and I also wanted to kind of compare and contrast two different policy methods. Um, can I read you two quotes? Of really course. Quick? Yeah. Yeah. Please. Okay. So. Um, I really want to get your expert opinion on these two different policy methods. The first one is um, AMLO recently doubling down on this approach that we've constantly seen to this drug crisis. Um, He told reporters this week that the drug crisis is being caused by a lack of hugs and of embraces. Right. Um, And he also said about the U.S., why don't they, the United States, take care of their problem of social decay? There's a lot of disintegration of families. There's a lot of individualism. There is a lack of love, of brotherhood, of hugs and embraces. Mm-hmm. That is why U.S. officials, that is what U.S. officials should be dedicating funds to address the causes. So now that's the first approach. Sure. The second approach um, is actually from South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. Right. Who we'll talk about later when we're talking about the testimony this week. Sure. But he said earlier this month, we are going to unleash the fury and might of the United States against cartels. We're going to destroy their business model and their lifestyle because our national security and the security of the United States as a whole depends on us taking decisive action. Okay. These are very different approaches. Um, and they I want to ask you what you think the solution is. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Because obviously <laughs> it is a problem that there is so much demand for drugs. 100%. But that being said, we do need to take decisive action against these cartels. Yeah. So what do you think is like a good middle ground here? Well, uh, you know, the l- let me address AMLO on American society first. <laughs> there actually is a legit critique of American society buried in there. I don't think for a moment that... Uh, that AMLO particularly cares uh, about American mm-hmm. society one way or the other. And certainly, even if you accepted um, his critique in full, it still doesn't even begin to account for or excuse uh, his deliberate and willing cession of territory to the cartels for operations mm-hmm. against the United States. Uh, he has an obligation, a moral obligation, but also an obligation under international law to make sure that his sovereign territory is not used to attack a neighbor, which right right now Mexico, the Mexican state does do that. So we need to be 100% clear on that. Um, It's true that there is a problem with social atomization, with breakdown, with demand for drugs here in the United States. We've heard about these deaths of despair that are really taking over a lot of the country. It's tragic, it's horrible, and ultimately it's on us, right? So it's on us that our society has gone this way. And that is something that, you know, we as Americans cannot look away from. However, uh, if we started a fire, that doesn't mean the Mexican state gets to pour gasoline on it. And so the reality is that we have to do both. We have to address the things that need to be addressed, which is gigantic in itself. But if there is a foreign party actor, in which case there is, in the Mexican state that is exacerbating uh, and, and, and to some extent being causative uh, of the problem, we have to be clear that uh, you know, the d- demand exists because the supply exists in many cases, especially when it comes to addictive substances, right. uh, uh, that, uh, that they've got an obligation to clean up themselves. The reason that AMLO talks about this, uh, I think to your earlier point, is he wants to deflect any responsibility or blame 
from his administration right. of Mexico. And yeah. so that's why he offers, you know, which I which I think and I hope that the uh, senators and congressmen on the delegation found this as insulting as I do, his offer to talk to the Chinese about fentanyl precursors mm. and chemicals being shipped. We, we don't need uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador to talk to China for us. We can do that ourselves. Now, what we need for him is to exercise full sovereignty over Mexico, which is his obligation that he routinely fails at. Uh, and so and so we, we just we have to keep that front and center. The object of U.S.-Mexico relations from the U.S. side is not the rectification of the United States. It is the, it is the, uh, is the obligation of Mexico to meet its baseline obligations as a neighbor and as a sovereign state. Now, all that being said, the Mexican response to everything I've just said is that the United States also has an obligation to prevent guns from coming south. We've heard this mm. directly in meetings with Mexican yeah. officials that, well, you know, we flood you with drugs, you flood us with guns, so who's really at fault here, right? And so, and so that's, which is, which is this, this horrific false dichotomy that they, that they raise up. It gains purchase in the United States because, of course, our friends on the center left actually believe it. Like, they actually do think they don't believe in the Second Amendment, they don't believe that uh, there's any positive role for firearms in a free mm. society, and so, and so they're perfectly willing to believe kind of this, this, um, like this epistemic fiction that they've created for themselves in which mass ownership of firearms has created uh, kind of a mass shooting society, which you know, there, there's plenty of evidence that that's not the case. Um, but that, but that, uh, but that it's doing the same in Mexico. And so the things that they blame uh, for crime and shooting in the U.S. are also to blame for crime and shooting in Mexico. And the reality is that in both cases there are um, local, I would even say like indigenous, you know, indigenous to the country, so indigenous to the United States, right. indigenous to Mexico, reasons that these things happen. They're societal causes. The firearms that are available in the United States legally are not the firearms that are putting cartels on par with the Mexican military. They're not the firearms that are putting uh, the Mexican cartels uh, on par with local police forces and enabling them to be quasi-sovereigns of themselves. And that's something that we have to really clearly understand. Uh, it is true that there are guns that go south, uh, un undeniable. And right. should the United States do more about it, there's always something more we can do. Are we not doing enough? I would dispute that. Is it causative of what's happening in Mexico? Absolutely not. Right now in the United States, uh, I cannot go buy an armored vehicle with a 50 cal mounted on the back that's fully automatic. I cannot buy a fully automatic weapon at McBride's guns here in Austin. Um, uh, the, these military-grade firearms just aren't available. Uh, yeah. and, and so, and so this, uh, this idea that the U.S. Um, is doing this, you know, why don't we have this? problem? Why doesn't Canada, which also borders on us, have this problem? Why is it Mexico? Well, it's Mexico because the cause is within Mexico itself. The cause is within Mexico. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I didn't address your, uh, your thing with Graham. Do you want to move sure. on? or No, uh, you, can, okay. you Sorry. can address it because I want to ask you something else about Graham. So. Graham, Graham uh, I mean, his, his rhetoric uh, is what it is. Um, uh, he's, he's expressing an aspiration rather than a policy, of course, because something right. like that requires a supportive Senate, which doesn't exist, and a White House to enact it, which also doesn't exist. Um, uh, but uh, is, he's right about one big thing, which is that the United States does need to think about putting all options on the table. This is something that you and I have discussed here on this podcast previously. Um, I'm not an advocate for an American invasion of Mexico or unilateral action if it can be avoided, but I do think it needs to be a tool in the kit mostly because I suspect that having it as a tool in the kit, um, well, first of all, when it's needed, which it sometimes is, uh, is, yeah. is going to be useful. Um, but I also suspect that it will spur elements of the Mexican state into doing things that they are currently not doing in their own territory. No, absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, and something else that he brought up on a different occasion, he actually brought it up this week uh, after Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was testifying in front of the um, House Foreign Affairs Committee. Mm-hmm. And um, he was kind of going back and forth with him on whether the U.S. policy that we have against drug cartels right now is working or not. Right. And he straight up asked him if he would support labeling or designating these Mexican drug cartels as foreign terrorist organizations, which, yeah. I, I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before, and this is a, a conversation that in the past two weeks I've seen everybody having. I don't think anyone was really talking about this like a month ago, but now like everybody's talking it's about it. Yeah. And for the first time, um, Anthony Blinken said, yeah, we would absolutely consider that, which to me was very surprising. I don't know about you, but I want to ask you, you know, what is this, where's this change coming from? Are they, are they finally seeing our need to take a strong stance against drug cartels or, or what do you think changed? It's, it's uh, man, that is the question right there. And the question that you're asking, if, if I could answer that, would mean I had insight in the Biden White House that I don't even know if uh, uh, Joe Biden has, to be honest with you. So, so, so to kind of rewind back a bit, we have talked about foreign terror designations for Mexican cartels before. We support it. Uh, for those of you out there on the internet, go to texaspolicy.com and download that paper on, yes. uh, which came out last week. Our it's new paper. Our new paper on designating Mexican cartels as foreign terror organizations. Uh, it, is a, it is a complicated topic, right. I would say. So we're in favor of it. It's entered into the U.S. policy conversation uh, with surprising rapidity over the past 30 to 45 days. Um, it was like, like you, I was surprised to hear Secretary of State Blinken say that it was something they would consider. Uh, yeah. Typically, it's something that, you know, for a Democratic administration, for folks on the left, is completely off the radar. There, there's, there's historically been this horror of anything that would sort of, you know, damage the relationship with the Mexicans. It's tough for me to know, um, especially from public sources, what the Secretary of State's openness to it is. Uh, it's it's possible that it was an error on his part. We should allow for that. That happens in testimonies uh, oh, sometimes. Yeah. Or he was emphasizing considering. Consider it. We'll consider it. For uh, a second. But but yeah, but it's not something he's going to do. I mean I mean who knows? But even the rhetorical openness to it is a change. Right. Uh, right. So uh, my my suspicion, which is only a suspicion, it could be completely wrong, is that um, you know when you get when you get uh, you know the the Atlantic when you get David Frum and Ann Applebaum and uh, that whole crowd. Uh, Gideon Rockman, I think, uh, you know, coming out with this kind of coordinated release of attacks mm. on AMLO, which happened several weeks ago in the yeah. Atlantic and elsewhere. Um, uh, and then you get uh, uh, sort of this this um, metastasizing concern for Mexican um, uh, electoral health, basically, mm-hmm. with the attack yeah. on INE. Uh, and then you get AMLO crazily, crazily attacking Republicans in the United States, yeah. which which President Biden and his team don't care about at all. Um, but then turning around and defending the uh, the moral integrity of Donald Trump, which they do care about, which he did. Uh, so so Amlo has been out there saying that Trump is getting railroaded by this DA in New York, which is probably true, uh, actually. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but he's been out there saying it, and so so Amlo. This is this is kind of Amlo's um, ego-driven incompetence. There's no other way to put it. Uh, is that he he alienated one half of the American political scene, and then he proceeded to make himself extremely distasteful to the other half of the American political scene. And mm-hmm. so now he has no friends. And my guess is that all of that coming together, it's noticed, obviously, by uh, kind of the foreign policy apparatus uh, around the White House and the State Department. And my guess is that's why 
the Secretary of State, um, who ordinarily would have nothing to do with what they would perceive as Republican-led belligerents to Mexico, is suddenly saying, yeah, you know what, maybe we'll think about it. Yeah, and yeah. this is going to make, uh, you know, a lot of Mexican officials very angry. It already has. <clears throat> and I want to read you Please. another quote, and this is in response to all this talk about cartels being labeled terrorists. Um, but the Consul General of Mexico in El Paso, Mauricio Ibarra Ponce de Leon, he said, to us, drug trafficking organizations are criminal organizations. This discussion of terrorism in the United States is just local politics. So I maybe, you know, yeah. maybe you could help me figure this out, Josh. Um, <laughs> cartels, they, they have enslaved so many communities in Mexico. They have created such a violent environment in Mexico. They have killed so many people. Oh, yeah. And it, I'm just kind of Hundreds dumbfounded of why they continue, why the Mexican government continues to defend them so much. Can you shed any light on that? Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it, it's a hierarchy of values. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, this is a theme that we return to over and over and over. But, um, uh, you, you know, you know, we as uh, but I think it's worth saying over and over and over as well. There's nobody who suffers more from the regime in Mexico and the mm-hmm. state of affairs in Mexico than the Mexican people themselves, uh, you know, and as a descendant of, of Mexican people. Um, my, you know, my most recent Mexican ancestors were my great grandparents, uh, at least three of them who were born in Mexico. I've got their immigration papers in the first half of the 20th century, you know, come to the United States. And so and so this is a this is a fresh connection. Uh, I knew them because, uh, of course, everybody has kids really early. So so uh, so so, this, so these are people that I knew and um, and a, a culture and a milieu of which uh, I'm actually terrifically proud uh, in many mm-hmm. ways. And so and so you see this happen uh, and you see this political class that does not seem to care all that much what happens to a nation over which they're supposed to be stewards. Um, and, and in me, it evinces uh, a sense of disgust uh, in mm. full candor. Uh, and that's a value judgment, uh, but it's not one that I don't shrink from uh, in this particular case. And so, yeah, you view them as, uh, as criminal groups, that's fine. What are you doing uh, about it? Uh, when, when a criminal group uh, uh, takes over 35 to 45% of your territory, a figure that we've talked about a lot, um, is it still just a criminal group? Is it really a local law enforcement issue? Of course it's not. They're, for, they're, they're, they're forcing down aviation. They're shutting down airports. They're controlling ports. They're, con- they're liaising with the army, for gosh mm-hmm. sakes. Uh, and at a certain point, you have to call them what they are. And if the Mexican consul general in El Paso uh, doesn't like it, then the people with whom he needs to speak, frankly, are not Estadounidenses. It's not us. It's not Americans. And it needs to be fellow Mexicans and fellow Mexican office holders uh, who need to do right, um, not by us in America, but by their own countrymen. And if they do that, then they'll be good neighbors. They haven't. Absolutely. And maybe, you know, one thing I've floated around is maybe it's just a sovereignty thing, is that the more he's being told to do something about cartels, now mm-hmm. he's just like hard-headed and he doesn't want to because yeah. he, he wants to keep kind of this narrative like we are sovereign, we are sovereign, don't tell us what to do. And, oh, yeah. and you've, you've seen that repeatedly, not just him, but a lot of the people that work with him. And, and he repeated it a lot of times at this rally that he had this week where he was talking about how we are not a U.S. colony, we're not a U.S. protectorate, don't tell us what to do. And not just that, but he's become very angry at the U.S. You kind of touched on, you know, how he was defending Trump a little bit. But he he said, you know, how dare the U.S. be talking about 
violence when President Joe yeah. Biden is is you know bombing the the Nordic what's it called? Oh, the Nord Stream pipeline. Yeah. Nord Stream pipeline. Yeah. The one guy who takes Seymour Hersh seriously is the president of Mexico. Yeah, so, and then yeah. he says like how dare you talk to us about human rights when like Julian Assange is d- detained. Right. And then he says finally like what you touched on is how are you guys talking to us about election interference and democracy when you in the U.S. are trying to interfere with Donald Trump running for an election? You just don't want him to be able to run because he's the main 2024 presidential contender. Right. So you're trying to shut him up or like not give him, give him an option. So like initial thoughts, like yeah, may, uh, some people uh, may uh, say like, oh, we're just being very quick to judge and not looking at the issues that we have here in the U.S. There's always a basket of critiques. In the United States, uh, uh, you know, we, we bring this on ourselves to a certain extent because we set ourselves up uh, historically as kind of a moral nation and a nation apart and a city on the hill and all that. And so and so we're always vulnerable to that kind of critiques. Uh, a lot of uh, people forget that one of the main um, drivers of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s was actually the, um, uh, the Soviet and communist world critique of American segregation. Now, mm-hmm. American segregation needed to go. The critique in itself was morally legitimate, but you know it came from this foreign source, and so and so there we went. Um, th- this is kind of what AMLO is is reviving uh, at this point. Uh, you know, last week uh, I had the privilege of being on um, uh, Speaker Newt Gingrich's podcast talking about this exact topic. And one of the things that he asked me in, in correspondence, uh, uh, I don't think I'm talking out of school, but uh, apologies, Speaker, if you're watching this, um, uh, was whether or not if the United States were to act unilaterally in Mexico, uh, what would the Mexican armed forces do? Uh, and I, th- I think I think we have to understand this. And we have to be very clear-eyed about it. That the Mexican armed forces, uh, which are to a shocking extent corrupt and complicit with the cartels themselves, would probably oppose us. But it's not likely that they would oppose us on the grounds that they're defending their cartel friends. Some of them might, particularly mm-hmm. in the army. But like Semar, for example, which is the navy, mm-hmm. which is relatively well trusted, probably also opposes on it. And it's because they really do see themselves. As, as they ought to, as defenders of Mexican sovereignty. And so this idea that you have to defend the sovereignty first, um, uh, you know, they won't defend it against, against cartels, but they'll defend it against, against, right. against the Americans uh, is, is present. And, 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 and candidly, I think that's a, that's a virtue on their part. Uh, you know, good for them that they'll defend the country. Now, now do the whole thing, right? And so, and so you know, one, one illustrative historical example uh, comes in in 1916. So Pancho Villa raids... Columbus, New Mexico, um, uh, you know, General Pershing assembles a punitive expedition, goes into Mexico and spends several months kind of wandering around northern Mexico uh, looking for Pancho Villa, right, to Mm. bring him to justice, which never happens. Um, uh, There's actually a considerable amount of combat uh, that happens between the American Expeditionary Force and Mexican forces. But here's the interesting part is that is that most of the combat uh, that happens and and there's uh, several Americans who are killed uh, in this, we actually... um, I think we lose a couple battles, uh, like small unit actions against Mexican forces. It wasn't really against Villa's forces. Uh, it was against the Carrancista forces, who otherwise were out to suppress uh, Villa, who actually end up murdering Villa several years later for their own purposes. Um, but those Carrancista forces, who you would think ordinarily you know, might want to cooperate with the United States versus Pancho Villa, mm-hmm. who's kind of an independent warlord at that point, uh, didn't do that. And they didn't do that on grounds of Mexican nationalism. And again, I do think this is an expression of civic virtue. So if I were Mexican, I would regard this as laudable mm-hmm. that they wanted to defend their country. Um, uh, but uh, you know, we, we just have to understand that that reflex is there. And in candor, as Americans, we would probably have the same reflex if the tables were turned. Yeah. Yeah. That's likely. 
Very likely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So and you can't fault them for that is what no, I'm saying. No, of course. I just wish they would act against their domestic enemies as much as their foreign ones. Right. No, I agree. Yeah. And this was kind of the topic of conversation. This has been a very dragged out conversation, mm -hmm. the one um, that I'm about to refer to. But the topic of conversation between um, Barr and Abroad, this kind of ongoing drama sure. where they're sending letters to each other via the Wall Street Journal, I yes, think it is, right? Yes, this uh, amazing correspondence. Former uh, Attorney General uh, Bill Barr. Bill Barr, yeah. yeah. And I think that the first time that he wrote about it, he was still Attorney General. Um, but now we've had, like, Ebrard respond to him saying, like, mm -hmm. our, again, our sovereignty will not, like, don't step on our toes. Right. Don't impose on our sovereignty and treat us with a little bit more of respect. Yeah. And to that, Bill Barr kind of responded and said, like, the only way to do something about this problem that we're having with this transnational crime is to work together. That's yeah. the only that's the only way that we could do something about it. And that kind of made me think, and maybe I'm being too much of a pessimist here, but do you think that there is still like a way to combat, combat cartels? Because the narrative that we've been using is they are so entrenched mm -hmm. in Mexican politics. Do you think that the grip that cartels have on Mexico is just too strong to get rid of, even if we work together with everything that we have? No, I don't think so. N nothing in history is inevitable, right? So, so, so any any idea this is this is a conceit. Uh, I think that that, that emerges that, you know, th this place is always going to be this way, and this thing's always going to happen here, and those patterns do emerge, and there are reasons that they emerge. But, but, but in the end, uh, you know, Mexico, if especially if Mexican elites choose to make it so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Mexico could be everything that Mexico ought to be. Mexico could be everything that Luis Donaldo Colosio wanted Mexico to be. That's still there. You know, you you know, you've been there. I've been there. We've talked to you know numerous Mexicans. Our who, friends there. That's what they say. Yeah, many of our friends there. You know, who who understand that the fulfillment of their nation's promise, you know, lies in 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 that in defeating uh, the the bad guys and having a civics that's open to all. Uh, and I remain, uh, again, I think I've said this before, long-term an optimist. Now, we just, mm -hmm. uh, we can define the long-term, like, in the course of centuries. And, right. you know, Mexico, <laughs> with, you know, five to seven hundred years of, of, of history, you know, may, may have another five to seven hundred before it becomes what it could be. Who knows? You know, you know God Hopefully willing, it's, it, it's in our yeah. lifetimes. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it, 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 it could be that. Um, that being said, if the analysis is that you can never uproot them, you still fight them. You still fight them. Uh, you know, the inability to come to a definitive solution, which is common in human affairs, does not militate against action on doing what needs to be done. We still have a mafia in the United States. We prosecute them nonetheless. Colombia still has mm -hmm. cartels in Cali and Medellin and every other place that they were in the 1990s, but they've been suppressed. You still fight them. You know, human evil doesn't disappear. You know, that's, that's something rooted in the nature of man and, and the consequence of the fall, and it's always going to be with us until the last day. But we still have an obligation to do everything that we can. To not let them win. To not let them win, to fight it, to combat it, to not surrender. And that is a virtue in itself. And, and I think, uh, I know that Americans can find it. I think Mexicans can too. I know many of them on an individual level have. Um, uh, and so, you know, our, our role yours and mine as individuals involved in policy and narrative uh, is to um, do what we can to facilitate that. No, absolutely. It's, like you say, an ongoing battle. Yeah. I just think that we need some leadership 
um, and then hopefully it'll happen. Well, we need leadership uh, on the American side. We need leadership to, to look to the American interests and to the Texas interests specifically. And that that is going to differ. It's not going to be synonymous with the Mexican interest. Uh, uh, if there were, uh, you know, the, the, the Mexican interest is is necessarily uh, intrinsic to, to them and their needs. And, uh, you know, what we want to see is for them to pursue it. Uh, and, you know, that, that may mean things that we don't necessarily like. But we're neighbors and we have to live together. And Absolutely. so if, if, if it ends in an end state where our communities are safe and secure, when that family of four who's U.S.-Mexican dual nationals can take that car trip from McAllen to Monterey without worrying about a roadblock or being kidnapped, mm-hmm. then I think we've ended in a good place. So yeah. may it be so. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Josh. You really like pulled everything together very well. And thank you again for being here. Do you have any closing thoughts or? No, I think my, my thoughts are closed. Yeah, so, uh, that was so a great way to end good it. Good conversation. Thanks. So thank you, Josh. And thank you, everyone, for listening to Hard Country. We'll see you next time.